Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, around the American shoreline, it's just a huge issue and has been for quite some time. Uh, Of course, the adaptation to changing conditions, rising sea levels, increasing storm risk, all of that is a huge topic. And there's an organization um, that we are fans of, the American Sh- Society of Adaptation Professionals, headed by uh, headed by Beth Gibbons. And if you remember, Tyler, Beth was on the show back in February 2021, so we haven't talked to her for about a year, and I'm looking forward to talking to her today. Me too, and a lot's happened uh, over that period of time, and specifically, uh, Uh, This show, uh, we are going to be talking about kind of a landscape scale look at from a national perspective, how the Biden administration and this Congress and uh, this current moment in time, how uh, how the feds are thinking about uh, climate change and adaptation and specifically some legislation that's moving through Congress that could really change the way we process this stuff as a country. There are some really important proposals that we're going to get into with Beth today. I'm looking forward to getting an update on the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, one of the best professional coastal related organizations out there. I I joined last year. I'm a proud member, uh, and I just think they do fantastic work. And so we're going to talk about the society, and we're going to talk about this pending legislation. Absolutely. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Hello, Beth. Welcome back to the American Shoreline Podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule as the executive director to talk to our listeners. Thanks a lot. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to be back. I can hardly believe it's been a year since our last conversation. Well, I know. Me too. I was looking back at that show, and uh, I was inspired by what I learned about the uh, Society of Adaptation Professionals in that interview and promptly became a member. I have not uh, uh, engaged in the, all of the great work that you guys are doing. I, I hope to, because the uh, professional development possibilities in the society are fantastic. Why don't you give us an update? What's going on at this society these days? Oh, there is so much going on because there's so much going on across the climate adaptation and resilience landscape. So when I think back, I appreciated in your introduction reminding me of when it was that I was with you guys last. So last February, February of 2021, what a kind of different moment it was. We didn't know what the Biden administration would be doing. We really didn't know where the pandemic would be leading us. Um, and we just didn't know how much the word climate adaptation was going to be entering into the zeitgeist, if you will, of conversations around climate action. And I think that's really happened. Um, 
So for ASAP, over the last year, we've really seen this incredible uh, conversation emerge around policy and especially at the federal level. We've seen a Biden administration that I think has been doing its level best to live up to its expectations around where it would be centering climate change in its administration priorities. We at ASAP have worked closely um, with agencies and now with Congress to talk about how do we ensure that the needs of climate adaptation professionals and the communities that they serve are front and center as we're setting up new programs, as we're thinking about funding, and as they're developing legislation. And while we're doing all of that, ASAP itself, you know, continues to grow and to thrive. We're hosting member-led interest groups that we have always convened, talking about policy, talking about migration, talking about diverse drivers of adaptation, job opportunities, the private sector growth. And across the board, we've seen people and organizations coming to ASAP, really seeking to engage in conversations where trust and reciprocity and member leadership are centered as we're working to identify what are the best and promising practices of climate adaptation and to do this work with a center on justice, but do it as quickly as we can to really try to be responding to the moment of, of climate crisis that we find ourselves in. Wow. Well, I have to say, I, I just have to agree. I'm nodding my head when you said that uh, something really has changed in the zeitgeist. And Peter, when we first started doing this show, I call it in the, we were still in the like climate change. D denialism was still, you know, yeah. we would debate like, is climate change a thing? <laughs> mm -hmm. Now uh, that seems just so silly. Uh, we are definitely in a, in a new era. I think that that is just absolutely true. And uh, we have had a year now of the Biden administration and um, this this kind of new era in in politics more broadly, because the zeitgeist, I think, has changed beyond just Democrats and Republicans. We, we have changed as kind of a country and maybe even beyond. Um, but before we go into kind of the big picture stuff, I would love to get a bottom up, um, you know, vibe check from the members on. Uh, optimism, pessimism, you know, we're talking about climate. It's a crisis <laughs> and this is going to be affecting us our whole lives. So uh, can you tell me, you know, now that the zeitgeist has changed, um, is that energizing for the professionals that you represent? It is energizing and I'm going to uh, not take away our enthusiasm, but I'm also going to temper it with another message that we're hearing from especially our colleagues who work on environmental justice, racial justice, and climate justice. And that's this important question of saying, we all feel a sense of urgency, but what are we urgent about? Are we urgent to return to the way things were in 2019? Are we urgent to return to the way things were in 1990? Are we urgent to return to something in the past? Or are we urgent to take a moment of transformative change and look to a future that is fundamentally different than where we have come from? And, and so I want to put that out there as sort of maybe a pin for our conversation because there is urgency, there's a sense of crisis, 
I think there's optimism, but more there's anticipation. There's still this hungry anticipation of what's to come. And in all of that, we are hearing a reminder. And at ASAP, we are issuing a reminder to say, as we recognize that we're in a period of transformational change, we accept that we have fundamentally shifted our global system. What are we going to do to align the way we behave as a society that says we have changed and we will change? So we aren't just trying to address this climate crisis by looking backwards. I think it's got to be forward looking. There's not a lot if you, you know, there's not a lot to go back to that was working. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, there just isn't. I mean, there wasn't as if, you know, we had sort of started down a constructive pathway and uh, somehow veered off course. I think we're still trying to define the way forward. Uh, when you think about where we are urgent to go, uh, where we need to uh, seek new solutions, um, what arenas or subject areas are you most interested in seeing us uh come into this transformational age? Well, I think that the great thing about climate change adaptation has remained consistent is that changes that we want to see tend to not be, um, I, I said this probably last time I was on the show, this isn't aliens landing on Earth. Um, it is addressing earth change. But as we think about the kinds of adaptation strategies and technologies and approaches that need to be implemented, we're thinking about addressing where we see flooding. We're talking about addressing where there is increased heat events. We're talking about addressing how neighbors know one another, build social cohesion relationships and have strong communication network. And a lot of the transformation that we're talking about is where are resources directed so that those people who have not had access to resources in the past because of our systems which have considered them to be a lower return on investment from a cost benefit analysis perspective or from a capital investment perspective whatever it may be that we're starting to really prioritize people first and so to me, I don't have a new technology that I want to come out and tote, but so much of what we're pushing for, especially in federal programs, is opening up, cracking open these you know, cost-benefit analysis tools and the grant funding guidelines and saying, are we enabling the people who we know need the resources and know what they need, by the way, they're experts of their own experience, to be able to bring to themselves the resources which are starting to flow and be out there and actually enabling people to be the owners of their future and be the owners of their experience and the change that they want. Uh, man, that was that was extremely uh, like insightful it. and well said, Beth. And uh, before we again turn to uh, this, this big uh, kind of national picture, um, I am curious, uh, going, you know, back down to just the professional in the trenches level, uh, if, if we have the, uh, the, uh, I want to use the sports analogy, the roster, do we have the right, uh, the right pieces in place from a personnel perspective? And what I'm really talking about here are expertise, um, 
you know, we, we see a lot of uh, scientists, a lot of uh, people who, uh, as Peter likes to say, count things very diligently and very well, measurers, you know. Uh, I feel, you know, my assessment has long been that we are a very kind of science-rich um, community in the in the climate space, and I think we, we've needed to round out a bit, and I'm wondering if you have noticed... Uh, uh, some of that happening in in the body of the professionals that uh, who make up the society. Yeah, and this is very much at the heart of um, an area that ASAP works on and cares deeply about is where are we with building and accounting for the adaptation and resilience workforce. And um, we had the opportunity to release a white paper with our partners at Environmental Energy Study Institute in 2021, where we looked at well, what is the state of the adaptation and re resilience job workforce and marketplace. And we see that there are more and more people who are working on climate adaptation and resilience who are identifying this as their primary um, purpose of their job. And that's happening across all levels from entry level up to senior. Um, we also know that currently adaptation and resilience jobs aren't counted in one of our formal ways that we count hmm. jobs through the through the NIACS codes or through the Department of Labor. And so that's something that we're actively in conversations about how should we be accounting for these positions. But we also know that there is still a huge need for more expertise for people who have experience with applied climate. So those who have formal training in, as climatologists in meteorology and climate programs, being able to translate those skills to a policy and a decision-making arena. And people coming from the other side of that, from the grassroots community, the CBO community up, who are really give, being given more of a voice now or taking the voice that they have always been due to be community leaders but need to have climate information readily available for them so that they can be running those climate engagements in the communities where they are. And so we have um, capacity still that needs to be built on both ends, making mm -hmm. sure that climate information and translation is part of all training. Um, one place that I'll point to is we want to imagine the, the scale of the opportunity here is that there's one estimate that we've read that for every billion dollars invested in flood resilience, we estimate 40,000 jobs will be created, primarily wow. in construction and retail. But you have to imagine that each one of those jobs, if they're being created for flood resilience, are also going to have to have accompanying them some understanding of what is the system change that has to happen in this construction, in this project, so that it's actually going to be climate resilient. Yeah. So we have we have work to do. We have yeah. made progress and we have work to do. Well, it's, you've mentioned two of the attributes of the American Society of Adaptation professionals that I absolutely mm -hmm. admire. And one is the member-led interest group process that gives your members real roles in defining the questions before the community of folks involved in adaptation and resilience planning uh, to really investigate and bring forward creative ideas. I'd like to uh, talk about that some more. And I'm also, the other attribute that is striking and, and I think very encouraging is that in this early professional society uh, dedicated to this transformation, one of the bedrocks is 
uh, is social resilience, uh, environmental justice, racial justice, inclusion as a founding principle of what the society thinks about and acts on. And uh, those are just such powerful strengths. And I'll make the pitch. If you're not a member of ASAP, you should be. And it's a great follow on LinkedIn and on uh, and on Facebook. And certainly Beth is uh, a great organization for any of the professionals out there uh, dealing with the complex issue of climate adaptation and resilience. But uh, Beth, tell us about the member-led interest groups. Remind our audience uh, about why that's important and what that's about. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for just that compliment to the network that members have built here. And I, I say that really truly because at ASAP, our member values are trust, reciprocity, something for everyone, not everything for everyone, member leadership and openness and transparency. Um, we are not an organization that you'll come to take a test, we pat you on the head and tell you you know how to do it for another year and you come back, test again and wash and repeat. The ASAP network as a society is really grounded in peer-to-peer -peer learning. And that peer-to-peer -peer learning is originally founded in our member-led interest groups. And so member-led interest groups are voted on once a year through rank choice voting and members suggest a topic that they want to convene with their colleagues around to investigate over the coming year with staff support those topics are matched to one another members write a small summary of what is this group going to do over the next year and then there's a voting process and the top groups are brought in as member groups which staff fully provides administrative support to so that they're able to achieve whatever their member-led goals are as we're heading into 2022, we're getting ready to launch our new member-led interest groups. Some of these are uh, returning from last year, but in the next year, we'll have a member group on the private sector. So focusing on the core competencies for private sector adaptation professionals to share the principles of practice. We'll have a group on professional opportunities in ASAP, really about how to build your own career and how to open doors, networking and skills as an adaptation professional. We'll have a group on policy practice, which carries a subgroup for Canadian policy practice. We'll have a group on convening climate collaboration. So this is really about ASAP aligning with other professional societies and other climate organizations to make sure that we're continuing this big tent model of of really being in the lane that will best serve the whole climate community. And we'll have a group on funding and finance, which is focused on how to ensure municipalities are creating finance ready resilience projects. And with that group, we're working with private sector investors as well as federal grant programs and then bringing together those from municipalities to ensure municipal programs are ready for finance. It's a really awesome suite of programs. I'm really excited to it see where awesome. these groups lead. Absolutely awesome. I love it. And you can really, uh, ladies and gentlemen, understand just how de-siloed uh, and de-siloing thinking about uh, adaptivity and, and what being an adaptation professional is. Uh, it really takes you out of, of your little hole. And uh, that's one of the things I love okay. about... Uh, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, uh, ASAP, which is kind of nice. Yeah, it is. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, time, time is of the essence. It's one of the things I like about it is the positioning as being 
uh, a framing of uh, uh, professional identity that is beyond, uh, you know, uh, coastal engineering or beyond uh, a, a single industrial silo. It's it's a bigger project than that, and and it it owns it. Uh, owns the fact that everything is connected. That's why all of these professionals need to uh, and are interested in hearing what each other has to say and collaborating, et cetera. So, uh, Beth, I just I think that it's a just a great thing. And uh, the zeitgeist has changed. And I definitely uh, w would imagine that ASAP is going to continue to uh, gain members and people are going to fall in and 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 identify as being adaptation professionals and turn to uh, this organization to really uh, represent them and one in one place where i think uh, representation will be uh, needed is at the national level at the at this at the federal level and um, yeah. can you, Beth, just give, can you set the scene and kind of lay out uh, from a landscape perspective uh, what, what is happening right now from an adapti adaptivity perspective at the federal uh, level? Yeah, so there's just a ton of activity taking place at the federal level. And I'll start with what is happening under the executive office and some of the federal agencies. We saw the Biden administration come in and quite quickly ask for all federal agencies to prepare adaptation plans, which would be statements of where they were previously in their work on climate adaptation and what were some of the needs which they were identifying and their plan to address how their agencies would be uh, taking on climate adaptation. And those plans were asked for within in the first couple of months of the administration being in office, and they actually were issued and each agency turned them in over the fall. We had the opportunity to review those plans and we saw a lot of plans talking about capacity building for agency staff. We saw a lot of those plans talking about assessing their grant making and their grant making processes to include more accessibility for frontline communities. Um, and we just saw a lot of conversation in those adaptation plans of how agencies were going to be thinking really intentionally about the integration of future climate information into the way that they would be supporting mm -hmm. projects happening um, through their funding proposals or their mm -hmm. funding programs. Excellent. So, you know, agencies really kind of, I would say, showing that they have a history with this work and looking towards where are they heading next. At the White House level, um, you know, I think that there's been a really strong push, right, for climate change. We know that climate resilience, climate adaptation at the White House has been a little bit slower to get organized. Um, I think that they are getting onto a good footing now, but the administration really leaned heavily into its understanding where it wanted to be with its mitigation goal and mitigation messaging. I think that they saw the um, they saw getting ready for the last cop as a place for them to show off their their climate mitigation agenda and ambition. And in that, they missed 
the mark somewhat in seeing that really the COP is about adaptation and mitigation. But since then, I would say things seem to be getting uh, on a more even keel where hmm. we see staff coming in, talking about resilience. They're bringing in um, folks who do understand the resilience landscape and have a history working in this space. So that's, that's really positive. Some other things that are happening at the federal level, uh, we've seen the kickoff of the next national climate assessment. So the fifth national climate assessment will come out in 2023. This is the uh, quadrennial report, which provides a state of the climate. And it has more and more been trying to respond to a demand from the public that it is a usable and a useful resource and one that goes beyond just stating the state of the climate but telling us what ought we to do about it what is it mm -hmm. going to mean for us um the National Climate Assessment Director is Allison Crimmins and she has really taken on this call from the public to ensure that the National Climate Assessment is one that is focused on people and it's one that is going to be usable and useful. And uh, I've had an opportunity to be really up close and personal with this National Climate Assessment because I'm a co-author for the Midwest chapter. And it actually has been really helpful for me to be deep in the NCA process because I've also got to compare it to what some other initiatives are that are being talked about. Right. So that's sort of the agency wow. executive office. And then I know we're going to talk a lot legislative, but if there's anything there you want to dig further into. Yeah, I do. And I, we are going to talk about uh, important legislative proposals in Congress right now on the Senate and the House side that we want to make our listeners aware of and, and hopefully spark them to uh, get up and, and uh, lend a voice uh, to the efforts that are being made in Congress. But so much in what you've mentioned uh, – Pleased to see that the federal agencies uh, are directed and have uh, uh, gone through the first uh, agency adaptation planning process to really take the perspective of climate change, adaptation, and resiliency and think it through as, in a systematic way for the agencies. I think that's a huge step forward in getting the topic clear on the agenda at the federal level across the spectrum of agencies involved. Um, the COP26, I would love to get your comments on COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. It was last October. This is the United Nations International Conference on Climate Change. It's a huge to-do. Um, tell me what your thoughts were, what you came away from. Uh, with, I don't know if you attended or not. I'm sure you followed it. What are your thoughts about COP26 that was completed in the fall last year? My thoughts about COP26 were that it left me feeling like there's so much work that's left for us to do. I think that it laid bare the fact that all of the reporting requirements in the world won't necessarily put us on the path that we need to be on. And I think that we saw that we're falling woefully behind on our mitigation goals. Uh -huh. And it made the case that adaptation needs to be not just a consideration. Adaptation isn't giving up on mitigation. Adaptation is doing what's necessary to protect the lives and the people that are here with us today feeling the impacts of climate change. Right. Um, there was another conversation which emerged during COP26, which was about what will we do with the places that are beyond adaptation now and what is owed to them and that debt that must be paid by developed nations who have led to 
um, island nations no longer being habitable and needing to consider what comes after and beyond adaptation and the expectation that that cost will need to be paid by Mm -hmm. developed nations, I thought was really important. And it was heard there more clearly than it had been in the past. It also, to me, opened a door about a domestic conversation on on reparations, on land back, on a lot of things that are happening here as we also hear uh, conversations growing around migration or managed retreat, et cetera, of who is responsible ultimately to pay for the damages that have been wrought and the wrongs that cannot be corrected. Hmm. And now a change is going to have to happen. Got it. So yeah, that was where my big takeaways from, from COP. I, I focus primarily on North America and our focus is really in the U.S. And in the U.S. is still kind of a baby participant in COP. It, it definitely came in trying to have a very big footprint, but we have a lot to learn about what is happening in adaptation internationally. And I think that for us, in order to do our work most effectively, it's knowing what's happening on that international scale. But at the end of the day, the work of the adaptation professional in Detroit or in St. Louis um, Really, their job isn't changing significantly because of the yeah. conversations at COP. Well, you know, we took a step back during the uh, Trump administration from the international framework on climate response and uh, rebuilding those relationships and our participation at the international level is uh, it clearly required at this point if we're going to go forward. Um, I think the National Climate Assessment Report is a, is a super important effort that uh, the government has undertaken now. We're going into the fifth update in 2023, you mentioned. Uh, it's such a power. It's becoming a more powerful document, in my opinion, as a an assessment of the conditions that we're facing, uh, a more direct statement as to the causes and the extent to which our activities are contributing to the problem and a more clearer call for action. So I, I'm starting to see the climate assessment really becoming uh, more and more important as a policy framework for the United States. Uh, are you optimistic about the National Climate Assessment Update Number 5, uh, which is, under, as you say, under development now and coming out next year? I am. I am really optimistic about it. I think that the leadership of the National Climate Assessment, specifically um, Alison Crimmins, who's director, uh, really has this vision for, as she puts it, she wants it to be the best the best NCA ever. Um, and I, I like it when people go ahead and just say that they want the thing they're the leader of to be the very best. And I think that to her, the best means that it'll be usable and useful. What the... NCA can't be is policy prescriptive. It is not there for that purpose. Mm -hmm. It is also an assessment report. And so it has limitations in that it can tell the story of where we are based on literature, which is available to reflect upon. Um, And that is a difficult limitation to put on work, especially in the area of climate adaptation and resilience, which we're more and more talking about identifying and respecting lived expertise and knowledge. And an assessment report has many of these trappings of needing to have white literature or at least gray literature that backs it up. That means 
you know, reports or papers that have pub been published and peer reviewed. So, you know, the assessment can't be everything to everyone, nor should it be. Um, but I do think that this is going to be a terrific report. I know that we as authors are being pushed to really think about people in this, to use a risk-based risk framing, to not just say, here's what has changed, but saying, this is why it matters, and this is what needs to happen, or or else we may see these results. So, you know, we're being called as authors to be thinking about the end user of it, um, but we are still working within a construct, which is a fair construct for, you know, this, this comes... Um, with legislation of its own that's enabled it in 1990 and it's an assessment and it is never going to be policy prescriptive because that is not what it's allowed to be. So for that, we need other tools. Uh, turning our attention back to uh, kind of the agency level, I'm, I'm interested in your evaluation of, of 2021, the first year of the Biden administration um, in power. And also, as I said before, we've been talking about the zeitgeist shift. Zeitgeist shift. All of a sudden, um, we're talking about uh, climate change in a different way. And I'm wondering, my assessment, I'll go first, is that there was, it was a bit of, I mean, very exciting times because to put it in broader um, context, this is again, my just my impression, ladies and gentlemen, but you know, we were all kind of holding our breath during the Trump administration. It was uh, the 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 idea of uh, climate change and uh, mitigation or adaptation was just not really openly talked about. But I think that at the uh, agency level, people were minding their posts, programs continued, and then boom, we enter this new era. And I would just love, uh, Beth, to get your assessment of what happened. I mean in that period of time uh was there an was it organized was it chaotic i mean to me it felt a little bit like an explosion of excitement <laughs> um but uh i would just love to to get your assessment of kind of from a command and control perspective um uh, how that that's a great went. way to i mean that's a question unto itself who's who's commanding and controlling climate adaptation or climate resilience from the from the biden administration top down and i think that that has remained really unclear and it has created a amazing amount of fervor and energy and excitement and i think in the early part of our interview i used um the word anticipation right is there optimism there there's more optimism out there than there was, uh, you know, a year and six weeks ago, it's a very different context to be working under with this issue in the United States. But I think that we're still like really marked by this um, anticipation. And there has been an idea that this administration will prioritize climate, that they will understand adaptation and resilience, that they will then do their best to move initiatives and funding to these issues. But government is very big. It moves very slow. And as we have been learning, that even as much as this is a conversation that is in the zeitgeist, as much as it is a conversation which feels like it has less uh, opposition than it has in the past, it's still hard to get things done. And th the challenges that we're facing don't get less expensive. 
as time goes by. And that investment, which has to come with caring, has been slow to manifest. Mm -hmm. And so to me, when I think of how how has this year, you know, really ranked, I think that in mental well-being in regard to the state of our jobs as climate professionals, we're doing a lot better, a lot better than we were. Good but in hear. terms of the actual being able to put a project in the ground because of the resources that have been manifest, it's not a lot better, with the exception maybe being California, hmm. where they have their own investment. So we're still streets. still starting to gear up as a uh, national strategy, but that t- that turns our attention. You've talked about the executive branch agencies in the White House as well. Let's talk about our friends in, in Congress on the Senate and the House side. There are yeah. currently two important legislative proposals that I'd like to touch on and get your thoughts on. The first is the National Climate Adaptation and Resilience Strategy Act of 2022, NCARS is how they refer to it. Uh, that has been introduced in the House and separately in the Senate, uh, led by co-sponsors Chris Coons from Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, a Democrat, Lisa Murkowski, a Republican senator from Alaska, uh, Scott Peters in the House, a Democrat from California, Maria Salazar, a Republican from Florida, and a, f- and a spat of others, Senator Susan Collins from Maine. Uh, there's a list, Cassidy from uh, Republican from Louisiana, also worth a mention. In mm-hmm. other words, bipartisan and bicameral proposal, the National Climate Adaptation and Resilience Strategy Act. Uh, tell us about this bill. Do you like it and do you want to see it move forward? Yeah, we do like it and we do want to see it move forward. This is a bill that is impressive for the reasons that you ticked off there. It's bicameral. It's bipartisan, and it has really ticked a lot of boxes that those of us who have wanted and hoped to see lasting authority for an assessment and a reporting and a strategy on climate resilience, um, it is bringing that forward. And I'll say that this is really important because we have seen past administrations work on adaptation. The Obama administration worked on climate adaptation. They too had a climate adaptation plan. They actually required adaptation plans from the agencies also. But when that administration changed, when that executive office changed, we saw all of those expectations, those requirements go out the window. When you have legislation like this, it creates a vehicle to ensure there is a standing requirement for the federal executive agencies and offices to continue assessing and reporting on the state of climate change, its impacts, and what needs to be done about it on a revolving basis. It's really, really critical that the legislation cre- legislature creates this lasting authority that is the NCARS bill. So we're really excited about it. Okay, well that's that's good to know how that works. And I, I, can you tell us a little bit about the um, the background and f- of how this came to be? Um, was there an initial? So who ideated this? I, I'm curious to know how did this how did this come about? 
Yeah, so this was ideaed in Senator Kuhn's office. He is the senator from Delaware, and he has been really strong on climate change and climate adaptation. He was part of the delegation that went to COP. Um, and he sees Delaware as a vulnerable state. He also knows how hard it can be for rural communities and small communities to tap into federal resources and assistance. And he is just determined to only introduce legislation that he believes is actionable. So he thinks of himself as a senator who doesn't introduce legislation to make statements. He thinks about legislation to make change. And when that team began working on this bill, we had the opportunity to talk with them really early on. And so we've been seeing versions of this dating back to the summer. And they engaged with ASAP and ASAP engaged with its network to bring in people who have worked for federal agencies, people that have done things like direct national climate assessments in the past and say, what is it that lasting authority can do to complement what is already here in order for us to be able to um, you know, have progress and be able to really use this kind of determination from a senator to introduce legislation that's going to be useful. So, you know, that's his kind of background. And, and I would say today, as they got closer to introduction, they were just determined that this bill would not be introduced without bipartisan, bicameral support. And um, they have continued on that track. So they're only bringing in uh, new supporters when they have bipartisan pairs to support the bill, Great. which I think is really smart. And so now the bill is waiting. It'll be taken, well, it's waiting to be taken up by the House Security and House Security Committee is the one that will end up hearing it. Hmm, okay. Or marking it up. Rather. Well, that's, it, it's, you know, it's in this era, as Tyler's talking about, the politics in the, in the United States is there are a bit tense, I would say. A little partisan, Tyler. A little, a little polarized. A little polarized yeah. from, uh, from in many spheres. But to see uh, uh, bipartisan support in both the Senate and the House on legislation of this significance tells me a lot that we're making a little bit of progress. Beth, I, I just, that alone, uh, with Senator Coons, Senator Murkowski, uh, Collins, Rosen, Cassidy. I mean, these are important coastal states, uh, representatives. Um, and this is a good sign. I'm encouraged. Do you think it will pass? And, and when, do you, when do you think the action on the bill may occur? Well, I'm not a policy expert, so I can share with you what I understand is the process that's happening from here. So this bill is going to be marked up by the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee in the Senate. That is a committee that's led by Senator Peters from my own Michigan um, with ranking member Portman. And so they're trying to make sure to get the attention of these committee chairs. When they have their attention and they take the bill, they will mark it up. When it has been marked up and approved, then they will be looking for some kind of legislative vehicle by which to move it. Right. One of the advantages potentially to this uh, being heard by the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee is it has the possibility of being moved with a Defense Authorization Act, hmm. which isn't going to happen soon. Things don't happen fast. That's kind of the big banner here. So you know, they're looking to move this bill in 
maybe the summer, maybe in the fall, um, that kind of vehicle is still going to need to be identified after the committee does its markup. Well, for coastal professionals out there and local government officials, coastal state reps, uh, this is a good time to let your voice be heard uh, with your senators and your Congress folks uh, to talk about the National Climate Adaptation and Resilient Strategy Act. Uh, Really good time to speak up um, and help marshal this bill forward. Um, Institutionalizing, as you've said, the countries, the nation's uh, thought process and strategy toward climate adaptation and resilience is important because it gives it persistence from one administration to the next and creates a structure that local communities and coastal states, and it's not just coastal, of course, but uh, uh, can really tie into, can really count on. And beyond that, you know, one of the reasons that we need this bill so much right now is because of the investment dollars that we've seen through the infrastructure bill. You know, a lot of people are still holding their breath about Build Back Better, but, you know, let's not forget what we already have. We have a massive infrastructure bill that passed, and it includes to the tune of $50 billion for resilience efforts. And those dollars are going to flow through these agencies. And part of the expectation in this bill is that the agencies are going to be reporting on what are they doing and how are they ensuring that resilience is being invested in by their agency work. And so this bill becomes a vehicle for us as taxpayers to make sure that we're assessing what is needed looking at the resources we have as a country to address those needs and turning to the agencies and saying, okay, you've had dollars flow from you. What have you done? What will you do? It really is a smart piece of legislation for those of us who have seen dollars go out the door and know it's so hard to track what happens once that bill is out of the headlines. So here's a piece of legislation that's going to help us to have that tracking Mm. done. Great. Definitely. And I would just add on to that, that when we're thinking about the future, Peter, I love to talk about it on this show. Uh, what, we're, what we do is we vision, we vision forward. And uh, by creating a command and control uh, mechanism, a system for the federal government to align it's, and be controlled, I mean, and, and for, for people on the, on the top to be able to in, enact a vision uh, in a unified and coherent and coordinated way. And that is something that we really haven't been con- had to confront yet because, as I said before, we have been in uh, a bit of a denial, uh, pretend uh, time <laughs> with climate change. We have not exactly been aggressively uh, adapting. We are behind the eight ball compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and this would be a reform in our national government that I think would help us be more uh, precise and controlled in the way that we spend spend money, uh, execute projects, measure success and failure. Uh, I just think it's a it's a brilliant uh, thing. What what is your assessment, Beth, on on the vision process as as far as as leadership goes? Do you are we strong there? Are we strong in the leadership process of visioning future? Uh, how, how, how does that how how does that stack up in your eyes? 
I think that there is, I think there are strong visionary leaders among the climate community. And I think that there are people who are feeling inspired by the sense of urgency to move into federal roles to work to ensure that that vision and leadership is one that is embedded in in federal action. I want to take it back. I don't know that you're asking about this bill specifically, but there were a couple other pieces that I wanted to highlight in it. And one of them, I think, they both actually speak to this vision and leader idea. One is that this bill also authorizes a chief resilience officer position at the White House so that there is someone who is coordinating and it's funded, right? This is part of the bill. It also has an appropriation that goes with it. The White House isn't borrowing a staff member from an agency or a university or some other entity. This is an appropriated position for a chief resilience officer so that they will be leading this effort. So there you have this opportunity to really bring knowledge and vision and strategy into into the White House. And then you also have the establishment of a non-federal partners council, which is a standing council of local government, nonprofits, business, tribes, all CBOs, community-based organizations. There's a, a list of how many of each type of industry and organization needs to be represented on the partners council that is a standing council and people are seated on it for three-year terms and i think that that is a really awesome component of this bill because it means that the federal government's not going it alone right they're institutionalizing the insight of the communities and of the stakeholder groups that need federal resources to be effective I like it. Um, mm-hmm. The working group and partners council, uh, mm-hmm. which is and, and also having the resiliency office uh, embedded in the White House as a permanent funded position uh, sounds great because it gives you that cross agency coordination strategy with a commitment to engage engagement of the public sector and the NGO community as part of the strategy. That sounds like a very good start, get the right people to the table, empower them and put it at a high enough level that folks will listen. I think that sounds like a very, very solid start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we often hear about a whole of government approach and about the coordination between agencies. But these agencies, they're people, they're made up of people, they have jobs already, they have tasks and responsibilities. When you add coordinate to another agency without actually creating a funding mechanism and some kind of authority to go with that requirement, um, it's just unfair to the people in the role. And so uh, this, I think that this really speaks to many of the things that we have asked for from from the legislature in the past. And so we're, anyway, we're well, very thrilled with it. We're well, very happy with you it. Can't, you can't manage what you don't understand, and you can't understand what you don't study. And we have got to take a hard and close look at what we're doing uh, as a group, as a society, through our government institutions and in the public and private sector uh, on this issue. And uh, hopefully this is a, a contributing step, a solid contributing step forward. I do want to before we before we wrap up. I'm interested in the other bill that uh, is pending right now in, in Congress on the House side, the Climate Resilience Workforce Act, 
which has been introduced into the House of Representatives. Can you tell us a little bit about this piece of legislation and why it is interesting to you? Yeah, I can just give you a quick rundown on this. So this has been introduced in the House by Congresswoman Jayapal from Washington State. And this is really focused on how we ensure that the climate adaptation or climate resilience workforce is being built up and supported. So this is looking to uh, create climate resilience jobs through grants to counties, cities, tribes, labor organizations. It's focusing on the impacts of climate change on the workforce, on the labor force, recognizing that worker health is an issue that we need to be attending to as we think about how climate change is impacting our work. It also has funding available to develop existing and new workforce training programs so that there is more knowledge about climate resilience across all sectors and having a priority for apprenticeship programs. And it goes beyond that and then really asks that we're looking for the development of regional, state, local, and community-based resilience plans that are going to center frontline communities and front and and center their workforce needs. And so this is a bill that is thinking about a conversation we had earlier today of, do we have the people in place to do the work that has to get done? And this is a bill that says, "Mm, we're not sure you do, but if you take these steps, then we could. And so this is a bill that's very exciting to ASAP. Well, I love it. And, uh, you know, it's it's getting the country moving in the right direction is this can be frustrating for people. Why don't we just jump into a project and get this stuff fixed? And you have to really uh, make the, pr- the process and the government systems operate effectively on a complex, multidimensional issue. As you're saying, you have to have the expertise and the bodies on the ground to do work. So these kinds of uh, Broad programmatic development steps that we're talking about are essential uh, for the country to effectively respond to climate change and to take on uh, adaptation and resilience efforts. So I, I, I'm for it. I know it can be frustrating. Uh, Tyler, yeah, what, what, what else I have we one, yeah. I've got one little question, Beth, because it's been about a year. And um, we, as we've discussed, a lot's changed over this past year. And I'm wondering... If you're, in the grandest sense, if your ideas of adaptivity have changed um, over this past year? Yeah, some of my ideas have changed over the last two years. It's hard for me to necessarily tell what was a year ago and what was two years ago sometimes. <laughs> it's a blur, and isn't so- it? Um, you know, I, excuse me if I said this to you when we spoke last year, but I go back to I go back to this lesson that I've taken from the pandemic. And when I've looked at how public health has responded to the pandemic, I see a field of practice that put on even footing from the get-go, treatment and prevention. And I take that lesson to heart as an adaptation professional myself, that all of us who work on climate change have to be willing to step into this arena and realize that prevention and treatment, adaptation and mitigation are part of the same body of work. And it's easy as an adaptation professional to feel like our side of it has gotten short shrift in the past, but it does no good 
to the patient. And the patient is all of us in this case of climate change, Indeed. just like it is with COVID. For us in adaptation to be, um, you know, in any way feel separated from the whole climate action body of work. And so to me, I, f I don't know where I was with that exactly a year ago, but it's really come home in a deep way for me and the way that I center my work and my conversation and that climate adaptation when done well is always been climate mitigation but beyond that my obligation to climate holistically feels much more pronounced and I feel like I've had this very acute um, reckoning with what that means by watching public mm -hmm. health show us how we could be acting well well I believe the day will come for the adaptation folks if it's not here already, uh, the sad fact is uh, we are not taking the steps necessary to prevent this problem from escalating. Uh, we have not come up with the comprehensive mitigation strategy to reduce or uh, go net negative on carbon in the atmosphere. So uh, we're going to have to live with it. And that means getting smart about how we adapt. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're giving up on treating it. That, that is a false choice. And uh, I'm glad that you're uh, this reconciliation of the mitigation versus adaptation divide is one. I'm, I'm just tired of that. I want it to move forward. It's got to be together and we need both. And, uh, and it's, as you say, it's fundamentally uh, all about the same thing, which is effectively responding to this tremendous challenge we're faced with. Yep. So say we all. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Beth Gibbons. She is the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, an outstanding member-led organization dealing with one of the most complex issues on the planet. Uh, I am a huge fan of the organization. If you haven't checked them out, get on the computer and go to adaptationprofessionals.org. That's their website. Sign up, join, and participate. There is lots of room to work here with a great group of people. Uh, Beth, such a treat to check in with you, and I hope we get to do it again uh, before another year passes. But we'd love to have you back on to update us, hopefully, on the successful passage of the legislation we have talking about today. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, Peter and Tyler. I really can't thank you enough for having me on and creating this space to talk about adaptation and ASAP. Thank you so much, Beth. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.